1: guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hey, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. We had a nice little catch up there, like a 30 minute catch up before yeah. the show. This was nice. Yeah, we did. I know we usually talk for a few minutes before we start recording, but we apparently had a lot to catch up on. So we had a nice long chat and now our conversation skills are nice and warmed up maybe 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 (laughs) what is it what are you
0: supposed to say yellow leather
1: red leather wait am I making that up what is the is that the word seashells by the seashore
0: yes sometime in the summertime so we should be good (laughs) I look forward to editing this episode it may be even easier for me maybe we've gotten our talking chops out of the way that's not even a phrase oh no this isn't good this is going downhill (laughs) fast we need to start
1: (laughs) all right So this week, the story we're discussing is really a sad story. It's the kind of case that just pulls at your heartstrings and makes you feel deeply sad for the victim and their family. There is something especially tragic about a young person who's just really starting their adult life, having all of their dreams and potential ripped away from them by a depraved individual who really didn't even have a motive to hurt them. Over the years that we've been doing this podcast, we've had the pleasure of speaking with and getting to know family members and friends of some of the victims that we've talked about, as well as connected on social media with many who have been personally affected or lost someone tragically to murder. I think I speak for Melissa and myself when I say that getting to hear their stories and listen to their grief is humbling and really reminds us that we can't take anything for granted. The heartbreak these families go through and have to carry with them forever is truly unimaginable. For most of us, when our significant other leaves home each morning for work, we have a 100% expectation that we will see them again later that day. No one ever thinks or prepares themselves for the possibility that they're saying goodbye to someone they love for the last time or that their life will be forever changed from that day forward. This week, we're talking about a young woman named Whitney Heichel who disappeared after saying goodbye to her husband and leaving for work on October 16, 2012.
0: Whitney Mariah Heichel was born on January 27, 1991. We don't know a ton about her childhood, but we do know that she grew up in Oregon and she graduated from Springwater Trail High School. From the way people who knew her later described her, we can assume she had a pretty happy and stable childhood. Whitney grew up with six siblings and her mom, Laura Lee, who said that Whitney was like a little mommy to her brothers and sisters. Her nickname became Mama partly because of how naturally motherly she was with her siblings, but also because she was just a gentle and compassionate person, willing to help anyone in need. Lorley said that Whitney started talking about future dreams of becoming a mom herself when she was just two years old after her little sister was born. Whitney continued to keep that dream of one day having kids of her own. Whitney was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and her family was extremely devoted to the religion. It was something that was very, very important to her. Shortly after graduating, Whitney began working at a Starbucks near her house. At work, she was known for being a perfectionist and really just a joy to work with. She loved to be silly and tell corny jokes, and people said that she had a real innocence about her that just made her really sweet to be around. On New Year's Day in 2011, Whitney married her boyfriend, Clinton Heichel. Clinton worked at an apartment complex in the area, and the newlyweds lived together in Gresham, Oregon. Clinton was very much in love with Whitney and said that she was beautiful, very kind, full of love, and a ray of light to everybody.
1: It was about 6.45 a.m. on October 16, 2012, when 21-year-old Whitney woke her husband Clinton up briefly to let him know that she was headed to work at Starbucks for the day. Whitney's shift started at 7 o'clock in the morning, and since Clinton had that day off, he stayed in bed and went back to sleep after Whitney left the apartment. But then, at 8.15, Clinton was woken up again by the sound of the phone ringing. It was Whitney's boss, saying that Whitney hadn't shown up for work and they were looking for her. Clinton immediately got out of bed and started dialing Whitney's phone and texting her and leaving her voicemails. He wasn't really wanting to assume the worst or cause a panic just yet, so he tried a few other avenues to locate his wife. He called other people to see if they had seen or heard from her, and he drove around town looking for Whitney's car. Nothing he did led to Whitney or provided any clue as to where she might be or what happened to her in the 15 minutes between leaving her house and the time her Starbucks shift started. At around 10 o'clock that morning, Clinton had exhausted all of his own options for finding Whitney, so he decided it was time to involve the police. He told them that his wife left their apartment at 6.45, but then evidently never showed up for her work at 7. He told them that they had a great relationship and Whitney had never run off or done anything sketchy during their marriage, so it was particularly weird and concerning for her to be missing like this. Clinton told the police that the only thing Whitney might have been stressed about at the time was that she'd recently learned that she might have precancerous indications, but otherwise nothing major had happened or was going on recently in their lives that would cause any of this. Clinton told officers that Whitney drove a black 1999 Ford Explorer, and... The officers told him that it was really too soon to officially declare her a missing person, but they agreed that they would keep in touch with him and they would talk again later that day. It wasn't long
0: before Clinton contacted police again. Just before 1 p.m., Clinton met with officers again, and this time he had family members with him who had been helping in the search for Whitney. One of the family members did some calling around and was able to find out that Whitney's bank card was used at 9.14 a.m. that morning at a gas station in Troutdale, which is about 10 minutes from their home in Gresham. This family member then went to the gas station and asked the attendants if they'd seen Whitney or her vehicle, and they looked through their surveillance footage together. I'm really amazed by, like, how proactive this family is. And we see it more as the story goes on, but people took this seriously, knew this was out of character for her, and they
1: were on it. They really went looking for her.
0: Yeah. So Whitney's explorer was seen on camera at one of the pumps at the time the car was used. A gas station employee said he remembered the people from the car, a man and a woman. He said the man was acting suspicious and hurried and only bought a small amount of gas, and Whitney was seen in the passenger seat. While Clinton and Whitney's other family members were meeting with the police and telling them this new information— One of them got a call from a friend named Evan Judd, who said he had just found Whitney's car. It was parked at a Walmart in Wood Village, just about two miles from where Whitney and Clinton lived. The right front window of the SUV was missing, and there was glass inside the car. The officers and Clinton headed to the Walmart together to take a look. Evan Judd and his wife Amanda were friends with Whitney and Clinton and knew them from church. When they heard that Whitney was missing, they immediately agreed to do whatever they could to help find her. The couple later told officers that at around 6:50 p.m. that night, while they were driving home from searching for Whitney, they saw another one of their friends from the Kingdom Hall, a man by the name of Jonathan Holt. Jonathan was just walking down the sidewalk headed south, which struck Amanda Judd as being a little bit weird, so they stopped to see if he was okay and they offered him a ride. At first, Jonathan started to act like he was going to get into the car, But then he really stopped short of opening the door and said, you know, he wanted to keep walking. He just wanted to clear his head. Evan and Amanda thought it was strange, but they drove off. And Amanda actually called Jonathan's wife, who was also named Amanda, you know, just to make sure everything was okay with him. Amanda Holt, who was Jonathan's wife, was upset and she was bawling when she answered the phone and said that Jonathan had been missing
1: and he wasn't answering his phone. So this was getting stranger and stranger. Evan and Amanda Judd decided to go back and look for Jonathan again, and they finally spotted him, but when they did, it seemed like Jonathan was trying to run from them or lose them. Eventually, Evan got out of his car and walked over to Jonathan, and then they walked next to each other for a little while. Evan asked Jonathan, you know, hey, what's going on? What's wrong? And Jonathan told him this crazy story about how he'd been robbed earlier that morning. He said that he was held at gunpoint when he was leaving his apartment. He was walking to the train station when he claimed that two men approached him with a gun and ordered him to the ground before rifling through his backpack and fleeing with everything Jonathan had. He said the robbers got away with his laptop, his iPad, phone, keys, and wallet, and they gave him back the backpack and then left. After the two men were done talking, they went back to Evan's car and the Judds took Jonathan back home to his apartment. When they got inside, Jonathan didn't say a word to his wife Amanda or offer any explanation to her. And Evan actually had to gently nudge Jonathan to get him to speak up and to tell his wife, you know, what happened and that he had been robbed. Whoa. Yeah. So Amanda Judd told the police that when they were with Jonathan that night, he didn't really look beat up or injured at all, but he did seem pretty shaken up. She said that she got the impression, based on what he told them, that he didn't call the police after the robbery and that he'd been walking around all day to clear his head. Back at the Walmart parking lot, Clinton gave officers permission to search Whitney's car for evidence. The Explorer was towed back to the crime lab for processing, and the police continue their investigation by obtaining Walmart surveillance footage. On the video, Whitney's SUV can be seen driving into the parking lot at 11.38 a.m. At that point, somebody backed it into the parking space where it was later found by Evan. By that afternoon, the police received a call from the Walmart after an employee stumbled upon some evidence that the police definitely wanted to see. This employee was taking out the garbage when they found bloody items inside the dumpster, including white table linens with blood on them, a stained floor mat, and a woman's wallet that had a medical card with Whitney Heichel's name on it. The driver's license and any bank cards were missing from this wallet.
0: I am amazed that we are on day one of a missing person and it's 1138 and all of this has been found in, you know, a few hours. Doesn't that seem like the quickest, I hate to say turnaround, but the quickest we've ever seen this moving just thanks to people at Walmart that are looking, you know, that are like paying attention to things that are weird, uh, friends that are on the lookout just, you know, to find her car. You'll hear people not find a car for weeks and weeks and weeks. Right. It's just amazing to me how quickly they were able to find things in this story.
1: Definitely. It moves very quickly. Yeah. Whenever you realize that you're talking about it's not even noon yet on the day that she has gone missing. And yes, all of this has already happened. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So upon learning about all of this evidence that was found in this Walmart dumpster, officers looked at more of the surveillance footage from the store, hoping to get a glimpse of the person who put these items in the dumpster. It was at 11.19 a.m. that the Explorer was seen on the video pulling around to the back and parking adjacent to the dumpster. A white man got out of the vehicle and walked off camera before getting back in the Explorer. It was five minutes later that the Explorer left the dumpster and headed towards the parking lot where it was parked. Officers also found more of Whitney's belongings in a trash bin at a mall near the Walmart. So this is like a little comment I had here when I was uh, getting to this part of the story, but it's so crazy to think about how frustrating it must have been for the police to be able to like see footage of this person coming and going, driving her car in and out of the Walmart parking lot. Yeah. But it's just, it's like one of those things where it's like you almost have what you need, but it's just not enough. So the, the footage they had, like they could see that this was somebody who was not Whitney driving the car, but they don't have a really a good enough view to be able to say like who could this be they don't really right. know and that's like so frustrating to think like he's right there on this footage but we don't know who this is
0: and they're always a couple hours behind like they're not far behind on any of this evidence I mean I was basically just saying this but it is like okay we're watching this at 11 something and we're watching this at one thirty, and this happened at 11 something like you're so close you know, on this person's right. foot, footsteps, but you, you just aren't there yet.
1: Right. And you just have to keep hoping that more people are calling in with more tips right. and more things that they're finding so that you can stay on the trail with something like this because these first hours are so, so important in uh, a case like this where somebody is missing. Right. And we are going to get back into the story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors.
0: If you've ever been on a diet, you know what a pain it is. Anything you want to eat is always a no, and I don't know about you, but crunching on kale leaves while my family's barbecuing and eating burgers is not my idea of a fun time. This is a huge part of the reason why I love Noom. Noom isn't a diet, but a psychology-based
1: approach to help you get on track to eating better. With Noom, there's no such thing as good food or bad food. Food is just food. Noom believes in an empathetic approach to reaching your lifestyle goals. It's all about encouraging a healthy lifestyle while getting you the results you want. If you go off track, that's okay. Noom is there to encourage you to just keep going towards your goals. While a magic
0: number on the scale isn't something I'm looking for, being able to live a healthy lifestyle is. Thanks to Noom, I found that allowing myself to eat that piece of cake at a birthday party instead of depriving myself and snacking on carrots or air, it's what helps keep me on track. If there's no room for error, I will fail and give up quickly. But Noom isn't like that, and Noom is easy. They just ask for 10 minutes a day to use their app and learn how to eat instead of having them tell you what to eat. My favorite part of the
1: app is the goal specialist who encourages me to keep going even when I have a rough day. And if you're still on the fence about trying Noom, just know that 80% of Noom users finish the program, and over 60% have stuck with the goals they've had for at least a year. Start building better habits for healthier, long-term results. Sign up for your trial at Noom.com moms. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms to start your trial today. We all love a good vacation, but planning a
0: vacation is anything but a vacation. Everything from where you want to go to what you want to do and where you want to stay. By the time I've opened up my browser to get started, the only thing I'm ready to plan for is a nap. But thanks to Apple Vacations, when I want to schedule my next family getaway, they are there to help me get it
1: all planned out. Apple Vacations is your one-stop shop for the summer vacation of your dreams. Apple Vacations has been around for more than 50 years and is known as America's favorite vacation company for good reason. They want to help you plan affordable and top-quality vacations with packages including round-trip airfare, hotel accommodations, meals, drinks, entertainment, and tips. I'm excited to plan our next vacation
0: with Apple Vacations. With destinations throughout Mexico, the Caribbean, and even Central and South America and Hawaii, there's no need to open up 50 tabs on your browser to do it all yourself when the great folks at Apple Vacations literally do it for a living. And because life can be unpredictable, you can book confidently when you add Travel Protection Plus to your trip, which means you can cancel or change a reservation at
1: no additional change fees. For a limited time, you can take $75 off your stay at Live Aqua located in Cancun or Punta Cana with promo code SAND75. Go to applevacations.com slash moms-murder to get this steal of a deal to your favorite Live Aqua in Cancun or Punta Cana today. And now back to the episode.
0: Before the break, we were talking about this new Walmart surveillance footage that the police had obtained and how they're able to see a man on this film in uh, Whitney's car, but they're not able to see who it actually is. Investigators next obtained the footage from the gas station where Whitney and the unknown man were seen. It was 9.13 a.m. when the Explorer pulled into the parking lot, but you couldn't see the driver in the video. At 9.14, an attendant pumped their gas and then the Explorer left the parking lot. So fun fact, Mandy has it in here. It's illegal to pump your own gas in Oregon and also in New Jersey. I remember hearing about it in New Jersey. I didn't know that in Oregon.
1: Yeah. Those are the only two states where an attendant pumps your gas for you. And it's like, they're like old laws that are just still around and it's still a thing. And like, I can see how it might be a little bit inconvenient. Like some people there say they don't like it, but I feel like sometimes it would be super convenient to just pull right up and somebody just does it for you and you can sit right there in your car and not have to do anything.
0: My whole life is like that. Anything I don't have to leave my car for, I'm (laughs) signing up for. Yeah, Yeah. it
1: sounds great. I mean, I can see if you're like in a hurry and you just want to do it yourself, like whatever. Maybe it should be an option, but it's illegal to do that. So if you are visiting those states or driving through, do not get out of your car and start pumping your own gas. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. I do remember whenever I was younger having gas station attendance um, for a while where you'd have somebody come out and pump your gas, but not all the stores did. And then I just remember it was gone. <laughs> it I was don't remember was a gone. time where okay, that was ever. Okay. I'm old. I get it. All right. <laughs> so back to this story. But um, unfortunately, though, these surveillance tapes at both locations were actually unhelpful in identifying any possible suspects. So police move on to trying to trace Whitney's phone next. So they learned that at about 9.07 a.m., Whitney's phone received some text messages. At the time these messages were received, the phone was on the south side of Mount Hood Community College in Gresham, which is very close to where the gas station was where Whitney and this unidentified man were seen. After these text messages were received, the phone was powered off and never used again. As word spread around town that Whitney was missing, police started getting tips and at one point they received information that Whitney's explorer had been seen around 25 minutes east of Gresham at Dodge Park. So that's when police went there to search the area and found broken car window glass and tire treads there. Meanwhile, a group of Jehovah's Witnesses who were helping look for the missing young woman started to think about how far her car could travel between the time her car was used to get gas and the time that her car was abandoned. They then considered where someone might hide a body within that distance, and they began searching those areas. Can't say enough good things about all the people that were working with whitney's family and stuff everyone was just on top of it you know it's amazing I don't know. and it these really are really is. great
1: ideas that they're that they're coming up with for helping in the search for just you know banding together so short notice and just coming yeah. together like they really got right on top of it and they were very organized and they had a plan and they executed it and it's yeah yeah it really is these something like a great community definitely back at the crime lab technicians were processing whitney's car which had been towed there earlier The outside of the SUV was very dirty, and all four of the wheel wells had dried mud and evergreen needles inside of them. The exterior of the car was covered in what they called a very light dusting of dried, dirty mist. One of the vehicle's license plates was also missing. But it was what they found inside the car that really told a gruesome story. They found four spent 9mm casings, a bottle of Febreze that was about a quarter full on the front passenger seat, And the rear seat was lowered down, and there was a large black rubber mat, which they thought was likely meant to cover up the rear storage area when the seats were um, in the upright position. So it was part, you know, it was part of the car, not something that was brought in there. Um, But on top of this rubber mat was a brown car carpeted mat. And on top of that, there were seven linens that were just kind of strewn about the back. The inside of the car smelled of cleaning chemicals, and the driver's side rear door had been used, and it looked like something had rubbed up against the area just above the wheel well on that side of the car. There was also blood found in the SUV. Blood spots were found on the inside driver's side rear door, on the door threshold step, the running board below the driver's side rear door, inside the driver's side rear door, and the passenger rear seat. Another large stain was found on the middle of the back seat, as well as blood stains on the floorboards underneath. Police found an earring back and a clump of long hair near the center of the backseat floorboard. The inside of the windshield of the car had clear red and white matter and clumps stuck to it. On the driver's floor mat, there was a bloody tooth, and on the front passenger floorboard, there were bone fragments found. At this point, investigators knew something horrific had happened inside this vehicle, and the concern for Whitney reached new heights. But investigators still didn't really have any idea who could be responsible. On October 17th, they decided to interview Jonathan Holt, the young man that was seen walking down the sidewalk acting strangely and alleging that he was robbed the same day that Whitney went missing. Coincidentally, or perhaps not so coincidentally... Jonathan Holt and his wife Amanda lived in the same apartment complex as Whitney and Clinton. And not only that, but their units were just across the way from each other. So if anything, the police were hoping that Jonathan might be able to tell them more about what happened to him that morning, and maybe his story would lead to a new discovery in Whitney's disappearance. Of course, investigators also felt that Jonathan himself was somebody that they wanted to clear.
0: Jonathan met with the police at the Gresham Police Department. He told them that he and his wife Amanda lived in the building that was directly across the parking lot from Whitney and Clinton. Jonathan and Amanda had been living in the complex for about two months, and they were really struggling financially due to how long Jonathan had been unemployed, and they'd been living on Amanda's income alone, but they were really barely getting by. He said that they did attend the same Kingdom Hall as the Heichels and saw them there once a week, but otherwise they weren't really close friends. The Heichels once asked if Jonathan and Amanda would water their plants for them, but that was really about it. He said that he assumed that the last time he saw Whitney was at church on Sunday, but he wasn't 100% sure. He also said he thought it had been about a month since he had seen Whitney at the apartment complex. Investigators then asked Jonathan what kind of car Whitney drove, and he told them it was a dark gray Explorer. And then with absolutely no prompting from police whatsoever, Jonathan added, quote, I think I might have been inside it for service once, end quote, meaning that as they were going door to door witnessing as Jehovah's Witnesses that he might have ridden in the car one time. So police asked if he'd ever driven the car, and he said that he, quote, didn't think so. And he said he thought that he rode in the backseat, which I feel like I could tell you- It's a strange thing to say. Right. I feel like every person's car that's not mine that I've driven, I could tell you. I don't- Yeah. And
1: you don't really normally drive somebody else's car. That's kind of a rarity, I think. And especially if you weren't close friends. Like, you would for sure be like, oh, yeah, there was this one time I drove their car. Like, that would be something you would for sure remember. For sure. Yeah. So investigators then asked
0: Jonathan where he was on the morning of October 16th. He said that his alarm went off at 4.45 a.m., He got up, he got ready for work, and then he left while his wife was still asleep. He said he then tried to start his motorcycle, but it wouldn't start, so he decided to walk to the train station, which is something he had never done before to get to work. Jonathan told police that it was on his way to the train station whenever he was robbed at gunpoint, right around 6 a.m. He alleged that the robbery happened on Southeast Palmquist Road between a park and a school, and that a light gray Dodge Neon pulled up and someone got out with a gun and quote-unquote basically told Jonathan to get on the ground. He said that this robber takes everything valuable from him and left him with an empty backpack.
1: So far, Jonathan's story seems plausible, but this is the point where his story starts to make less and less sense. So he tells the officers that he was scared he was going to lose his job that day because he'd already been late for work once and he had been in trouble. And now the robbery was going to cause him to be late again, which for only being at your job for a week, I feel like it's pretty impressive that you've already been in trouble for being late. Yeah.
0: For sure. But I feel like the robbery thing is like everyone's going to give you an excuse. If you call the police and the police give you a police report and you right. go to work and say, super sorry, I'm late. I was
1: robbed this morning. Your work would At be gun like, point. oh, my
0: gosh. Right. Yeah. Exactly. like We're glad you're OK. They wouldn't care.
1: Yeah. So instead of just going into work late and explaining what happened, he decided to literally walk around for the entire day so that he could what he said was get away and be by himself. So he spent the entire day walking. This is his story, official story, to the police. He said he first set out for his dad's house, but he stopped at a Domino's pizza along the way where he allegedly just sat down and cried. When he started back towards his father's, he realized that his dad probably wasn't even home, so he walked to a Burger King that he used to work at. His plan was to sit at one of the benches outside and just think, but then he figured there was no real point in doing that, so he just kept on walking past the Burger King and continued just wandering around aimlessly for hours. He said he never talked to or saw anyone until the Judds pulled up and offered him a ride and that the first time he heard about Whitney's disappearance was when the Judds told him while they were in the car. Officers asked what Jonathan was wearing that morning when he was robbed and he told them that he had on a black sweatshirt with a leather jacket over it. He said the robbers told him to take off the jacket and the sweatshirt and then they stole the sweatshirt from him Gave him back the empty backpack and his leather jacket. Took his sweatshirt, which I think of the two th- things. Maybe they were I'm really never stealing. Your, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm never stealing your
0: sweatshirt. The if you're stealing things for money, you would steal the leather jacket.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, so during the telling of this story, Jonathan changed and added details a few times, which of course makes investigators very suspicious. They asked if they could have Jonathan's permission to ping his phone, since it had allegedly been stolen that morning. So they're like, hey, why don't we just ping your phone and find out where that is, and maybe we'll get some clues about what's going on here. So they ended up learning that Jonathan's phone was used on October 16th at 6.08 a.m. And at that time, it was a call that was made to the Starbucks where Whitney worked. After that phone call, Jonathan's phone was either shut off or didn't have service for the rest of that day.
0: Wow. So while the police were interviewing Jonathan, his wife Amanda was also being interviewed at the same time. She told investigators that they had known Whitney for about two years, but they weren't super close and they didn't really go out of their way to talk or hang out or anything. She also told police about how she and Jonathan once watered the Heichel's plants while they were on vacation, and that Whitney returned the favor by watching Amanda's cat. Amanda said that these were the only interactions that she and Jonathan ever had with Whitney and Clinton. When officers questioned Amanda about the events of October 16th, this is what she told them. She said on the night before October 15th, everything was really normal. She and Jonathan got home around 6 or 6.30, they had pizza for dinner, and they stayed home all evening. They went to bed around 9.30 or 10 o'clock that night. The next morning, Jonathan wakes up around 5 a.m., but Amanda falls back asleep, so she wasn't exactly sure what time he left. But when Amanda got up and left for her job at 745, she noticed that Jonathan had taken his motorcycle. It wasn't parked in the normal spot that it was. Amanda said that around 11 that morning, her sister sent her a text about the missing woman, Whitney Heichel. Amanda then sent Jonathan a text to ask him if he'd seen anything funny that morning when he was leaving for work, but he never replied to her text. Later that afternoon, when Amanda got home from work, she noticed that Jonathan's motorcycle was in the parking lot, but it was parked in someone else's spot. When she went inside their apartment, Jonathan wasn't there. So at this point, Amanda gets worried since Jonathan also hadn't responded to her messages earlier that day, so she then calls his dad to ask if he'd seen him. Uh, At this point, Jonathan and his dad were both working at this vending machine company. His dad had worked there for a while, and Jonathan had just started working there about a week earlier. And Jonathan's work schedule was to work from 6 a.m. to sometime between 2 and 4 p.m. So Jonathan's dad tells Amanda that he never showed up for work that morning. Amanda was rightfully very concerned at this point. She has no idea where her husband is. She can't get a hold of him. There's this missing girl that they know from their complex, and she calls her family, you know, to tell them what's going on. At around 7 p.m. that night, Amanda Judd called over and said they had just seen Jonathan behaving strangely. It was around 9 p.m. that night when the Judds showed up at the apartment to bring Jonathan home. And we'll get right back into the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. By the end of the night, I am done. I am tired, I'm probably hungry, and I just want to veg out. And my favorite way to veg out is listening to podcasts while playing a quick round or three of Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the perfect way for me to unwind after a long day of kids, work, or whatever life decides to hit me with that day. All while
1: still using my brain in a way that leaves me refreshingly challenged. While there are other matching puzzle games, there's only one Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the matching puzzle game that makes you want to come back again and again, which actually isn't a problem, because Best Fiends has thousands of fun and exciting puzzles to solve, which means there's always more. We've been playing Best Fiends for almost two years now, and it's still part of
0: my daily routine. You can find me playing a quick round before bed, while I'm in line waiting for a Diet Coke, or outside waiting for my dog to do his business. I'm on level 1,699, and while I've played other match-three games before, they are nothing compared to Best Fiends. I love earning keys in each round that allow me to earn new fiends like my favorite Napoleon. that keeps the game fun and exciting and makes me wonder what they will think of next. If you want to keep up with me, my player number is 254-2573, and lots of listeners have already found me
1: there. Download the five-star rated puzzle game, Best Fiends, free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. If right now in life you're having a harder time
0: dealing with things than you normally do, that's okay. Many of us are. And when I realized I needed a little help to get me through this period, I turned to BetterHelp. BetterHelp simply asks you just a few questions and, based on your answers, is able to assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment. And you can begin communicating in under 24 hours.
1: BetterHelp is more affordable than most traditional therapists. Plus, financial aid is available to those who qualify. BetterHelp is available worldwide, so whether you're dealing with stress, depression, anxiety, relationships, or more, a counselor is available to you thanks to the internet. And if you decide you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional cost.
0: I love that I can not only talk to my therapist by phone or video, but can also message her throughout the week if there's something I want to work on or get guidance on. My therapist Lauren is amazing, but she also watches Trash TV, so she understands me more than most and what I mean
1: when I compare my brain to an episode of Hoarders. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash moms. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, hel dot slash moms.
0: Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home?
1: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about how officers are investigating the disappearance of Whitney Heichel. They have a lot of evidence that suggests that something really bad might have happened to her. And they have their sights kind of set on this guy, Jonathan Holt. He was behaving strangely on the day of the disappearance and he did have somewhat of a close connection with the missing person so according to amanda holt who was jonathan's wife when jonathan finally got home that night he told her his story about where he'd been all day and everything that allegedly went down since he left for work that morning he told her that when he went to leave for work his motorcycle wouldn't start which led him to walking to the train station which resulted in the armed robbery in which he lost his phone and everything else of value that he owned. Amanda was pretty much sitting there listening to this story and was like, okay, so why didn't you just walk back home after that happened? Which is what most people would do. And Jonathan said that he felt like such a failure, and he felt like Amanda wouldn't want him to come home after being robbed, and that he was also worried sick about losing his job, the one that he decided not to go to at all. Um, But that's what he said his reasons were, why he didn't come home. Yeah. Yeah. So Amanda told the investigators that she didn't fully believe his story when he was telling it to her. She thought it was a little crazy and had a hard time believing any of it. You know, any of that was true. She felt like he was definitely lying to her about what happened that day and where he really was. Apparently, Jonathan had run off on her before when things weren't going his way. And once in the past, he even lied to her about having a job when he, in fact, did not. Amanda also told investigators about another time where Jonathan acted inappropriately and stole a friend's car. It was in August of 2011. He was with his friend Nathan, and they went to Best Buy on the afternoon of August 18th. Nathan went inside the store while Jonathan sat in Nathan's car, but when Nathan came out, Jonathan and the car were gone. The police talked to Amanda that day to see if she knew where her husband was, but she couldn't get in touch with him either. Then, just after midnight, Jonathan randomly showed up at his friend Nathan's house with his car and apologized for taking it. He said he had a mental breakdown and needed to get away and rethink his life and straighten out his priorities, which I guess a good place to start would be not stealing your friend's car.
0: Yeah, that that feels like that's going to cause a few more issues
1: than we were having prior. (laughs) Right. According to him, he allegedly drove Nathan's car to a park that day in Washington where he sat for several hours before driving back and returning the car. So the police at this point are feeling like maybe they're onto something with Jonathan and they keep working with him. On October 18th, they had him come down to create a sketch of the men who allegedly robbed him. Once again, during this meeting, parts of Jonathan's story changed again. He added a new detail, which was that he actually had a gun with him that morning, along with anywhere from two to five magazines for it. And he said that he didn't mention this little detail to the police because his wife, Amanda, didn't know he had a gun and he didn't want her to know. Before Jonathan left the station that night, he submitted his DNA and his fingerprints for forensic testing. Their fingerprints proved to be a match to some of the fingerprints found on the bottle of Febreze that was found in Whitney's SUV, and Jonathan's DNA was matched to DNA that was found on the steering wheel of Whitney's car.
0: But there was still more that was yet to unravel on October 18th. On the same day, some kids were playing outside near Whitney and Clinton's apartment building, and they found a cell phone in the bushes that had been powered off. The cell phone belonged to Whitney. Later on that same day, the team of Jehovah's Witnesses, who'd been helping in the search for Whitney, ended up finding her license plate that was missing from the SUV on Larch Mountain, which is a remote, forested area about 45 minutes east of Gresham. Police were notified, and a team was sent out to search the area for evidence. They searched the area for days, and they found several things of interest. At this time, investigators were pretty sure that Jonathan had something to do with the crime— So on October 19th, at around 5.15 a.m., they started a surveillance detail on him. Officers followed Jonathan that morning to his job, and he arrived around 6 a.m. When he gets there, he takes out a large backpack out of the trunk, and he starts walking into the employee area. Several hours later, at 2.45 p.m., Jonathan goes back to his car, the same car that he shares with his wife Amanda, and he puts the backpack back in the trunk, and he takes off his coat. When he takes his coat off, the officers who were watching him noticed that he was wearing a gray sweatshirt with large pockets. They watched as he rummaged through the trunk for a few minutes and then walked back towards the business and suspiciously stood near this wall. The officers continued to observe what he was doing, and they watched as he tried to sneakily discard a 9mm Smith & Wesson pistol in the shrubbery along the wall.
1: Oh yeah, sure, because the police are never going to check around your place of employment. I know the
0: the places where all this evidence is found really is just pointing arrows to yourself. I think everything is just kind of like you have a link to it. He's leaving a trail to himself. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Which, thank goodness he is. By all means, please do this. Um, So then he walked back to his car and the officers followed him again to an area near Mount Hood Community College. When Jonathan stopped the car, he got out and walked into a field and into some bushes while dropping three of the magazines from the 9mm gun. He also dropped multiple rounds of ammo and an empty holster. When he was done, he walks backwards to his car, but instead of getting inside, he goes to a nearby apartment complex and walks up to a dumpster there. After looking around to be sure that the coast was clear, Jonathan pulled out two empty, crumpled up boxes for ammo and throws them away in the dumpster before returning his car. How smart were the police to surveil him this day? He's yeah, getting rid he's of doing literally everything. Yeah. yeah. So after this was all complete, Jonathan drives himself to the Gresham Police Department for a previously arranged meeting with police at 3.30 p.m.
1: Oh my gosh, that's just the craziest thing to me that he is like doing all this in preparation before he goes to talk to the police. And like little does he know that the police are watching him do all of that. That's just, yeah, it's craziness. So as Jonathan was walking into the police station, he did what I think is probably one of the most idiotic things you could possibly do at a police station and maybe the most idiotic thing that he did in this story. Um, But in the parking lot there, Uh, At the police station, there was a little island in the middle with tall grass and landscaping in it. You know, we've all seen those kind of little things in parking lots. Um, And so Jonathan pretended to bend down near this little island with grass to tie his shoes. And while he was down there, he threw a handgun into the grass. And he then looked around the parking lot and just kind of stood up and looked around and waltzed right into the police station.
0: Melissa, of all the
1: places that you would think to discard a gun that you're not supposed to have, what would top the list as, like, the number one place you would not do that? Right?
0: <laughs> well, it's like whenever you hear somebody rob a store across from a police station, you're like, really? Of all the places yeah. in the world, the one across? But, like, to drop it off there, you don't think they're going to find that in,
1: I don't know, 35 seconds? It's, it's craziness. Or that they have cameras in their parking lots. Right. And it's going to be very obvious that it was you that put it there. It's just And he's terrible. already been to
0: all these places. Like, he's dropped off at several places. Throw the ammo there if you have to throw something. But the actual possible murder weapon oh my gosh
1: yeah yeah so we aren't sure exactly what happened in Jonathan's mind between the time that he was disposing of all this evidence and the time that he arrived in the interview room but in an unexpected twist Jonathan actually gets into the interview room this time and confesses to kidnapping raping and murdering Whitney Heichel during this October 19th meeting At the time police were interviewing him on this day, there were still volunteers out searching Larch Mountain for any sign of Whitney. Jonathan told police that not only was he responsible for Whitney's murder, but that back when he and Amanda were taking care of Whitney's plants, he actually stole from the Heichels. He said he went through their things and stole Clinton's old iPhone from a dresser drawer, and he put a new SIM card in it and had been using the phone for his own. He also confessed to possessing child pornography on his laptop and on external hard drives. According to Jonathan's confession, on the morning of October 16th, he waited outside Whitney's apartment for her to leave. When she came out, he asked her for a ride, and she agreed to give him one. He said that five minutes into the ride, he pulled out a gun and forced her to drive to Roslyn Lake, which is near Dodge Park. There, he made her perform oral sex on him, and then he said he shot her four times. On his way to Larch Mountain to dispose of her body, Jonathan threw his cell phone into Rosalind Lake. After his confession, Jonathan was arrested and charged with kidnapping, robbery, sodomy, and murder, although police were not able to ever say what his motive was for killing Whitney. Some theorize that it's because Jonathan was obsessed with her. He was also later charged with burglary for stealing Clinton's phone, as well as being charged with 10 counts of encouraging child sexual abuse for the child porn, which that is something I don't want to know any more details about because Mm -mm. that just turned just completely horrific. So upon learning that her husband had just confessed to these heinous crimes, Amanda Holt filed for divorce and it was finalized in December of 2012.
0: Sadly, at just about the same time that Jonathan was confessing to the police, the volunteers who were searching Larch Mountain found Whitney's body. An autopsy confirmed that her cause of death was four gunshot wounds. Whitney's family, including her husband Clinton, were absolutely devastated. They actually agreed to let Jonathan take a plea deal to avoid the pain of going to trial. The deal was that Jonathan would plead guilty and receive life in prison. Whitney's family said they did not support the use of the death penalty. On July 8, 2013, Jonathan pleaded guilty to three counts of aggravated murder, one count of kidnapping, and two counts of robbery. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. During his sentencing hearing, Jonathan kept his head down and he cried on a desk. He is currently imprisoned in Eastern Oregon Correctional Institution in Pendleton, Oregon. To this day, though, no one really knows why he woke up on the morning of October 16th and decided to murder an innocent woman. There was really nothing in his past that indicated he was capable of committing a violent and savage crime. Jonathan was born October 24, 1987, to parents Nancy and Chris, and he grew up in Northeast Portland. The Holt family was known for being pleasant and ordinary, never really causing any trouble. And Jonathan himself was thought of as being a good kid. He graduated from Parkrose High School, where he was known for being quiet, shy, and kept to himself. He was bullied pretty badly in school. He said that kids would push his books down and push him into walls or tripped him on purpose. It was March of 2010 when he married Amanda and they lived a normal life and attended the same church as Whitney and Clinton. They were struggling financially at the time of the murder, but otherwise there truly is no reason that can be found for what Jonathan did and why he took Whitney away from the people who loved her so dearly.
1: Oh my gosh. I These ones really are so hard to get your just to understand, you know, what even happened right. because there's just no reason and there's no answers for this family. And right. it's so hard to just say, like, that this is a terrible thing that happened and we aren't going to know more about why or, you know, yeah. what, what really, what would, what went through his head that caused him to do this. It's so sad right. and so terrible. And she was so young and had so much ahead of her. It's And to hear her family and her husband um, especially talk about, the loss you know that they feel without her it's so so sad it's just terrible so heartbreaking
0: and it's not one of these like such a random story where she's approached by some guy at a gas station to give her a ride this is her neighbor this is who she goes to church with he's you know taking care of things at her house when they've been on vacation it it feels like there's enough of a trusting relationship where it doesn't seem so crazy right right so it doesn't seem so out of left field for this person to ask you for a ride. You really wouldn't think much about it because it's some No, there is and of some, course you would say sure.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you would of course be like, yeah, definitely. I would never, you know, I don't have neighbors that I have that kind of relationship with, but if I did and they asked me for a ride, I would be like, yeah, sure, you know, if I'm I'm going out and then, you know, you need to go somewhere that I can take you on my way, that's totally fine. But like, yeah, it just that it's, was what's
0: really shocking. And I've heard that before. I remember a girl I grew up with, something similar happened that was terrible. And it was somebody that she trusted or she knew enough. And, you know, just to lose that kind of trust, to be able to have that small level of trust with people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, there's like your community of people that you know and that you have afforded some level of trust to. And to have something like that taken away, there's no way people in this circle. I don't know. I just feel like you could never really trust anyone again, right? After having somebody like this around you, and I feel really bad. I mean, of course, I feel terrible for Whitney's family and Clinton. Like uh, the pain that they've gone through, we'll never understand. I do also feel bad for Jonathan's wife, Amanda. I can't oh, imagine. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden, all eyes are on you and your husband, and this person you thought you were married to is not the person that you were married to, and. Even going back to that whole him stealing the car from his friend, you right. gotta think, what on earth was he doing that night? Because this is so wild, right? And I do almost think if he ha- he was very like doesn't seem like he went to any great lengths to plan any of this, but had he not confessed um, or acted that strangely that day, how long would it have been till they found right. out it was him? Because Sure, they found his prints, but if he wasn't in a database or anything, how would ever know it was him. You would never think that. So thank goodness he confessed and literally left his DNA everywhere. But, man, just so sad. Yeah,
1: very, very sad one. Okay, Melissa, so we're going to lighten it up a little bit before we get out of here and do our palate cleansing um, segment. Last thing before we go, we're going to turn the page. You're going to explain it. Because I have a whole hot mess over here and I I had some realizations while we were I was working on this last one before we go. So you can explain what we're doing. I gotta write this out better from now on.
0: (laughs) So today is the day we're recording is International Friends Day. Happy International Friends Day, Mandy. Thank you. Happy International Friends
1: Day, Melissa. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I basically sent her this idea, but I forgot to even say, like, happy International Friends Day. I was like, hey, today is <laughs> International <laughs> Friends Day. Do you want to do this? All I could think to do was, like, uh, some fun uh, friends that you know through pop culture, through movie, through TVs, through ska bands, whatever. Just like friendships <laughs> that you think are fun uh, that that we might know. What are some that you enjoy in in things, right? Is that what I said? For sure. Ish. That's what okay, you said. Go. That okay. is
1: ish what you said. Ish what I said. Yes. yes. Okay. Okay. So, so I assume, Melissa, uh-huh. that you had a much easier time with this than I did.
0: See, that's why I gave you all the different modes of thing. I gave you uh-huh. TV and music uh-huh. and everything. Uh-huh. I did. <laughs> you did. I know. <laughs> all right. Know. Well, but what do you have?
1: Well, I have some things that are probably not great. So I'm going to let you start us off. Okay.
0: Okay, I think you know who this is, but I know people oh, that gosh. are listening will. No, I've told you to watch it. I don't know that you have. Okay. Um, Have you seen Pen15 yet? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's on Hulu. It's really a fun watch, especially the first season. I think you would love it. But it's the – um it's filmed now it's two girls maya and anna and their best friends back in the early 2000s so it's it's all the early 2000s stuff so you've got like music from then uh fashion from then it's just very nostalgic and i know you're young but you're old enough to remember early 2000s or yeah yeah yes. thank goodness I okay good. i have
1: memories of the year 2000 okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, it's really fun, but they have such a sweet friendship. They're so funny. It just reminds you of, like, the cheesy, like, in sixth and seventh grade, the people you were friends with and how, like, you'd have, like, secret handshakes, stuff like that. Like, they're just really, Aww. like, best friends forever. I love them so much. I'm going to make you watch that first season because it is, I mean, hilarious and just awkward and it makes you cringe. And having kids kind of that age now, it's 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 a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so far, your selections seem like they're going to be very wholesome, <laughs> um yeah i think they might be all right go okay. ahead who do you got <laughs> no so i yeah so i don't
0: really have a lot okay so i realized wait, while 10, doing 15... this that means penis like that's oh. literally it's not like a rated g <laughs> show <laughs> oh
1: yeah oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah i didn't I know that either get
1: it. yeah so
0: it's <laughs> not sorry for throwing that word out there everyone but yeah no it's like it's it's pg-13 oh okay
1: yeah, yeah. so wait okay pg-13 so yeah. I can, I can watch it with my child or I cannot.
0: Ooh, um, no, Ooh. Don't. there's like a whole
1: episode I have to switch. Cause it makes
0: me so uncomfortable. It's okay. It's okay. finding themselves in one of the episode and I can't watch, I can't watch them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I realized while doing this that I am, I might need an intervention because I might need to be forced to watch more TV and oh movies gosh. and consume more media. And like, I know I've seen several things where I'm like, oh, these people have a great like. Uh, you know, their characters have a great relationship or dynamic or whatever. But, like, tell me why, Melissa, while I was sitting here trying to think of things, the only things that came to my mind are, like, stupid duos. That's all right. Like, Harold and Kumar and Bill and Ted. That's a right? good one. Those are and good. So, like, <laughs> so those are, like, the ones that – but they're so cliché, right? But those are, like, the classic nothing On screen. Wrong with classics. Best friends, right? And so then, of course, I came to like Romy and Michelle, which is another movie yes. that we've talked about before. And I just love their friendship too. I, that's one of the reasons I always loved that movie when I was growing up. And I was watching—I well, say growing up, but I guess I was a little older when that came out. But um, I was watching it and just thinking, like, how cool it would be to like be grown up and have an adult best friend. And it's what's even funnier about that is that I do not have a best friend that is like a Romy and Michelle situation right. for me. Like, I really don't at all. But. um I loved how like they were just so they're fun. They were just committed to their shenanigans together and it was great. And I just love that. And I guess in a way you are committed to my shenanigans (laughs) I or just committed. I don't know. One of those two things. (laughs) Okay. I do have some other things. um, things, but I'll hear what else you have first.
0: Okay, well, my next one. I've talked about this show before. Uh, Below Deck, it's reality, but it's Kate Chastain and Captain Lee. Like, she's the chief stew, and he's the yacht captain, and he will not let anybody give her any crap, and she doesn't let anybody give him any crap, and they have such a good dynamic. They're, like, a generation apart, but it's, like, a sweet father daughter relationship in a way. Are I don't these know but yachties? they're like friends. They're yachties. yeah They are people that live under yachts. <laughs> <laughs> he gets the captain's quarters, so he's cool, but I don't know. They just seem like n- nice people that look out for each other. I always like things like that where people like I love drama and shows, but I always like when there's a little friendship um there. And that that's always fun for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you had a yacht or a boat of any kind, Melissa, would you go by Captain Melissa? I would go by Captain Momo. I think that's way more Oh, oh, I like that. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I've never thought about that in my life, but I'm very concerned with how quickly (laughs) I was like, absolutely not.
1: Captain Momo. (laughs) Hey, when you know, you know.
0: (laughs) If I'm being honest, if I had any type of boat, I would still be the Chief Stew. I would still be that person. I'm never going
1: to be captain. (laughs) Perfect, perfect. Okay, so I had come up with, um, I wanted to Google and find out some other things. Like I wanted to go a little different direction and find out. Sure. What celebrities that we know um, or see have actual real life, like, really close friendships or have, like, a quirky friendship story? So I thought that would be kind of fun, right? So according to literally one insider article that I found, here are (laughs) a couple of celebrity pairs and a quick little rundown of their story. So Jennifer Aniston and Paul Rudd, of course, we've seen movies together that they've done. They are apparently pretty great pals in real life. They, like, hang out and... They have a special bond. Interesting. I would have said Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox. I think they are probably pals too, but that one wouldn't really surprise me. I'll give that to you. Okay. I've not heard that one. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the other one that I was (laughs) very surprised by is that Pitbull and John Travolta are close enough that they text each other, which, okay, What? And apparently it was Pitbull who inspired and encouraged John Travolta to embrace his baldness and bear it all, which I was just like Mr. Worldwide did this? Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's what this one inside says.
0: Are you sure this is insider, not Smith
1: Smiter? Because this does not seem like a real thing. It's I let real. you have Jennifer Aniston and it's Paul Rudd. Really this on one this is insider article. Yeah. He inspired him. He encouraged his friend to just go bald and just embrace it. Love your age and love going bald. That's what Pitbull said. That was his advice. What so in the be... world? <laughs> yeah. So that's what I have for this week. Last thing before we go.
0: Okay, Mandy, <laughs> I absolutely love that. And that is my new favorite thing in the entire world. <laughs> I. <laughs> I just want to know what led to that conversation.
1: Like, hey, Pitbull, do you love being bald? <laughs> right? I mean, they're like, who do I know? Which one of my friends is bald that I can ask for advice? And then you just text like Bruce Pitbull? Willis. Like, there's
0: a million people.
1: Yeah, <laughs> He's literally done it for years and years. Oh, my gosh. I love it. I hope John Travolta hears this and writes us and tells us if this is a true story.
0: I can't deal with even... <laughs> remotely thinking that's a possibility don't do that like my heart fluttered i i think i need a <laughs> pill or something i can't do that okay that i think we should end it there because i can't top that that was great <laughs> i loved it
1: <laughs> mr 305 i love it Perfect. that's so great yeah yeah all right guys well i guess that was it for this week <laughs> um we will be back next week same time same place new story have a great week bye
0: thanks so much for listening to the moms and murder podcast